We're going to continue to talk about living like Jesus, but it's the last week of our five-week series, and I'm going to be talking to you about a story that doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't make sense as far as going with the series unless you really think about it. It's a story where God himself, the Lord, sets up some concepts on a T, sets up a diverging path or trail, making us choose whether we're going to serve ourselves or whether we're going to serve him. And then he talks about consequences. And so we're going to get to that in just a minute. Now, the other day, we did have some nice weather this last week. And Joy and I, if the weather gets above, say, 45, 50 degrees, we walk outside. We love to walk outside. We have a track that we walk in our neighborhood. And um, when we walk this track, a lot of it's through houses and stuff. We walk our dogs. But then there's one really dangerous section. It's very, very dangerous, very, very scary. It's a section out by a pond. And um, the reason that it's scary is because, and I didn't really know this, my wife, she's afraid of geese. Um, Gooses, uh, just the rabid ones, the crazy geese, goose. Goose is singular, right? She's not afraid of all geese, just the mean ones. So the bad goose is the one she's afraid of. And so we're walking, and, and she normally outwalks me. She walks so fast, and, and, you know, she loves to walk. And I'm like a rented horse. You ever rented a horse? They're really bad when you're going away from the barn, but when you turn around and head back, they want to run. It's like when I'm going away from the house, I always want to go back to the house. Joy never does. And this one particular trip, she's like, hey, let's just go home. And I was like, what's wrong with you? You never just go home. And she goes, no, no, it's, let's, let's just, you know, skip the, the lake loop, and let's just go home. And I said, there's no way. We've already started. You know, I have my, my uh, Apple watch on. We're timing our laps. You know, we're doing our thing. And I said, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and finish it. You okay with that? You know, and I gave her a couple, you know, aren't you? And, you know, don't you, can't you keep up with me? That kind of stuff, right? So she says something really random, I thought. She's like, do you think geese remember people? And um, <laughs> so I, I don't know, Joy. I thought it was a random question. You know, I'm used to those from time to time. And uh, I said, I don't know if they remember people or not. I've never really known a goose and haven't paid much attention to it. And so we round the corner and there's, we're in the gauntlet. We're walking down the bike path of death. Right by the pond, there are these mated pairs of geese with little fuzzy babies and they're a little aggressive, right? And so then Joy, she asked me as we're walking, she looked at me and I didn't really realize she was afraid of them. She's a farm girl. She was raised on a farm with bulls and cows and horses and you know big animals and stuff that, even roosters that are scary. And she said, do they always hiss before they run after you and try to hurt you? And I said, I don't think that there are rules. I think they can, I said, probably some hiss first and tell you they're coming. Maybe some don't hiss at all. They're soft-spoken. Maybe some flog you and then they hiss afterwards to insult you and tell you, I, I don't know. I didn't realize it was a, a deal. And she said, well, I don't like them. And as we're walking, she's like grabbing my arm. And I said, okay, sweetheart, no problem. I got this. I said, if a goose begins to chase you, so don't run because they'll, they'll, they'll chase you down and they'll hit you with their wings and very scary and I don't think they can kill you, but at least it's you know, humiliating and probably uncomfortable. <laughs> I said, this is what you do. I said, I want you to jump behind me. Don't run, jump behind me. Now I've prepared my whole life to protect my wife. I got Kung Fu, karate, a little boxing, no problem. I wanna take these geese out, but I said, Joy, if you grab me, because that's what she'd do, she'd jump behind me and she'd grab me and use me as a shield, then I would get totaled by a goose and not be able to protect her. I said, get behind me, but do not touch me because I'm gonna be in full combat mode. We're gonna take these geese out. And so Joy calculated her odds. Can Rick protect me from a very angry father goose 
uh, or can I outwalk a goose? She chose the second route and she kicked it into that high gear, like tucked it under and uh, start walking. And the goose, the geese, the, mad, the bad ones are hissing at her like that. It's because they're hissing. And I said, it's because you're walking very aggressively. If you just amble as you walk and, and just non, don't make eye contact, they're fine. But Joy made the best time in that last three quarter mile going back to our house. We got back, I looked at my watch, we beat our time by five minutes. Sometimes you need a little extra motivation. Sometimes you need to walk through the danger zone. Sometimes you need to come face to face with life and death. We're gonna be talking about a story today that includes a lot of firsts. Man, these two boys, they walked into the danger zone. They came face to face with life and death. They needed a little extra motivation. One chose well, one chose poorly. And God set this story up for a purpose. The purpose is to let us know, even today, as we follow this thread throughout history, throughout Scripture, what God expects from us as his people, what offering ourselves to him in worship looks like. Now, offering ourselves to God involves at least three things. One, it involves what we think about. And our mind, our thoughts, we have to offer them to God. It also involves our calendar, what we do with our time. It involves our checkbook or our app or our debit card, how we invest our money. And the principle that's unfolded here is a disciple is as a disciple does, that we show the Lord how much we care and how much we love him by the way we choose to offer ourselves to him. In this story, one chose well, one chose poorly. Now, the reason that it's important is all of us want rest for our souls. All of us want peace in this life. We want meaning in this life. We want hope. We want to know why we were created. And this story provides some context to that. It's going to seem to some like a harsh truth. But in reality, it's a secret, a key that unlocks meaning and significance that's beyond the human mind or imagination. It comes from God himself. And it's the story of the first set of brothers who made the first set of choices in this way. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I want to tell you the story. Picture back in the day, way back in the day, Adam and Eve, the first two humans created to walk and talk with God, to experience God without sin, all of their senses fully alive, in tune to the presence of God, being able to talk to him, being able to to be with God, to hear him walking through the garden, to have a conversation and to have no shame and no regret and no cloudy judgment, no tunnel vision, to be purely free of self and in the moment worshiping the one true creator, our Lord, our God. Adam and Eve were created that way. They chose sin. It was the first deception, the first time Satan revealed himself to humanity, the first really bad choice, the first time that humans, well, the first curse. God, after Adam and Eve chose the apple, chose the one sin that God told them not to to do, because God was loving and merciful, his heart broke, but because God's holy and just, he had to punish sin. And so Adam and Eve were taken from the garden that had been created for them, a perfect environment for them to experience God himself, put them on the outside, set an angel there at the doorway to stand guard and said, from now on, your life is gonna be tough. And it's gonna be tough because that's a consequence of the sin that you chose. But there's a way back to me this broken relationship. 
There's a way back. It'll be offered. It'll come through a blood sacrifice. He began to hint, to foreshadow the plan that God had. But as he set this plan in motion, Adam and Eve, they didn't understand. It was the first two, man and woman, humans, living in this earth, this entire planet, being empty except for these two. And they're figuring everything out for themselves as they enter into this life, unfamiliar and tainted with the stink of their choices, living with the regret to never make those choices again. But having yet a restored relationship with God that comes through forgiveness... And the Bible picks up in Genesis chapter 4 with a really significant, important segment of their life. Yesterday, Pastor Dan and Lori and Joy and I got to hang out with um, a whole bunch. I think there were three dozen um, uh, young, other couples with young kids, littles. Um, I don't know exactly how old they were. They were, you know, this old, like little, little kids out at Tricia and Kirby Buell's house and, and watching them, you know, run around. We even had some couples there who um, were pregnant. They hadn't even had their kids yet. And it was funny to watch them because they're looking at all the people with kids and they're, you know, going, oh my goodness, my life is going to get really complicated, but it's also going to get full with just a joy that you can't believe when you have these little kids come into your life. But can you imagine not knowing how it works? Can you imagine the first pregnancy, the first childbirth, this whole process that yet so familiar to us, it happens all the time. Hospitals are filled with moms who've just had children. This is a first. The Bible here in Genesis chapter 4 says Adam had relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. No big deal for us. For her, big deal, right? Can you imagine my stomach starting to grow. What happened? They figure out a life is in there. And then as they figure out the life is in there and she becomes to be more and more pregnant, they have to figure everything out, like how that life is going to enter the world in an inconvenient exit. And as they figure all this stuff out, they're trying and wrapping their minds around it. And here is this baby. And Eve, she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. She gave birth to Cain. Cain. Cain means created. In this case, created along with God. I guess every woman could say that at the birth of their child. They could hold the baby up and say, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a woman. I have brought forth a man. And it's true. Only my son, Richard, I know, would have wanted at least a, you know, an assist and say, with the help of the Lord and my husband, you know, my daughter-in-law could say, I brought forth a woman, a little baby. But this is an amazing moment. And so she names him created, created along with the Lord. Later, we don't know how much later, when the Bible says the word later, especially in Genesis, you don't know how much later. It could be hours. It could be, some people think they were twins because in the Hebrew, it's a little unclear. Could be weeks, could be months, could be years. We don't know. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, she knew the drill by, by then, right? Still special, but yet still miraculous, God giving her another child, the first two siblings. Now there were four people on the earth. Abel meant breath or vapor or temporary one. Interesting, foreshadowing, it meant frail, faint. It's kind of like a cloud that blows across the sky. Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil like his father. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Now, interesting to think about this idea, and you have to really put on your thinking caps to understand that this is the same kind of thing that we still do today. 
we still bring our offerings to the Lord. Now, we're not required to bring blood sacrifices, thankfully. Jesus took care of all that. But you and I still bring our offerings. When we bring our offerings to the Lord, Romans 12 tells us that we present ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that we aren't conformed to the image of the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we give God our thoughts, we give him our calendar, and we give God our money. We give him everything that we are, and we present ourselves. And so God set the stage with these first two Kids, and he would have told Adam, certainly, in God's conversations with Adam, this is what I expect. This is what it means to be right with me. I don't want you to negotiate. I don't want you to hedge your bets. I don't want you to work angles. I don't want you to be religious because religion is full of angles and man-made calculations on how much we have to give God to receive something in return and always trying to figure out and to calculate and to make sure we manage our impressions and relationships with others and even with God himself. And God said, I don't want to create a whole group of people who are just religious, just trying to play the game, just trying to do the minimum. I want to create a group of people who love me and give with their whole heart. So we see here these two brothers who would have been instructed by their dad, no doubt, you and I instruct our kids. We pull our kids in, put them on our knee when they're little, tell them to love Jesus. We tell them that God wants all of them. We want nothing more than our kids to serve the Lord. Adam would have done the same thing. Eve would have done the same thing. Raising these two boys in the same home. I have two boys, Richard and Nathan. They could not be any less alike than two boys raised in the same family. Love them both. They both have turned out really, really well. But watching them grow up, we did the exact same things. And then we see them as two different individual people making their own choices. Many of you have kids like this. Adam and Eve were parents who loved their kids and poured into their kids. Unfortunately, one of these kids had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, wasn't really that concerned about the things that God cared about. And we see one of them, one of them was. So the Bible really just sort of skips ahead in these details and, and says, in the course of time, Cain brought some, which is a really important word, of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, that firstborn word is really important because the Bible says the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but he looked at Cain with disfavor and didn't accept it. And the Hebrew, it separates this. It says that God looked at Cain and knew that there was a broken relationship there, and so there was disfavor, and he didn't accept the offering. But yet he looked at Abel with favor and accepted the offering because there was a right relationship there. And one of the concepts that's not quite as clear when we read it in the NIV, but abundantly clear when you read it in the original language, is that Abel was giving from the first fruits, which means that he was giving God his best. Leviticus talks a lot about offerings and what God expected. And in Leviticus, at least three times, Moses wrote about how when we give to the Lord, we give from the first fruits. We give the best of our attention. We give the, the, the majority, the bulk, the intention of our thoughts. We give the money and our resources off the top because the way we tell the Lord we love him is how we show him as we present ourselves to him through an offering saying all of me to all of you even though I don't understand how all of it works. And these two boys had to choose. They had to choose, am I gonna manage my relationship with God and do the minimum to try to make God bless me 
or am I all in? Am I gonna give to the Lord from my first fruits and trust God even though it doesn't always make sense? And so when the Bible says that God received one offering and didn't receive the other, it wasn't as much about the offering itself. Some scholars say, well, Cain should have known better and given a blood offering, and he didn't. He gave some fruit and vegetables, and Abel, you know, gave the right offering. And we don't know any of that. I mean, I mean blood sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament for the atonement of sins, but grain offerings were, were given for thanksgiving, and it was symbolic and important, and nobody really knows. But what we do know is God saw the heart. And the reality is one son was managing his relationship with God and playing games and the other one was actually worshiping the Lord. The same choice you and I make every day, the same choice we make with our lives, with our thoughts, with our calendar, and with our resources. Who am I gonna serve? How am I gonna be known? It reveals our character. Character was revealed. Can you imagine the first two kids? How important is this story? Why did God put this at the very beginning? because he wanted us to understand the consequences of our choice. Well, Cain, interestingly enough, the Bible says was very angry and his face was downcast. And you think, because we're reading this in the NIV and modern translation, oh, he was having a bad day and he had a little frown on his face and his mama came up to him and pinched his cheeks and said, why don't you turn that frown upside down? And it was just, everything was, that's not what it means. What this means is he was shipwrecked in his soul. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders. There was a rain cloud following him around. He was angry. He was brooding. He was, I mean, this was a guy who was tormented. And the crazy thing is, it was his fault. But what you see here is we see that his face was downcast, is that he didn't accept responsibility for his choices and say, you know, the reason that my life is really not everything that I hoped it would be and the reason that I'm so downcast and so discouraged and so depressed and so filled with anxiety, you know the reason? He didn't say the reason is because I know better but I choose not to do better, that I'm playing games with God and I'm not the person who God's created me to be. He got mad at God and blamed God. He said, it's your fault, God. You're not giving me all of the stuff that I think I deserve. I should have a better life. And by the way, my brother who's doing it, I hate his guts. Because for some reason, he sees something I don't. My brother has peace, and I don't. My brother's life seems to be filled with purpose. I'm purposeless. And he hated him for it. Do you see the consequences of this diverging trail? From the very beginning, the first two brothers from the first two parents. And God's saying, listen, there are consequences to bad choices, but don't think about it like that. God intervenes, and I want you to see this intervention as like you and I talking to a billionaire. And the billionaire says, you know what? I want to give you 100% of my money. What's wrong with that, right? I'll take it. No, no, no. And somebody's talking the billionaire out of it, telling him all the reasons not to give him the money. I mean, it's as if God is trying to say, all of the blessings are available to you in this life, and all you have to do is receive them. And he begins to beg, to plead, to reason with Cain. You see it right here. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, God didn't need information. He knows why he was angry. God has all of the information. He wanted Cain to acknowledge it. He wanted Cain to repent, to turn from his self-sufficiency, from his game playing, from his managing the relationship with God. And God goes on, the Lord himself, 
He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, here's a principle that I just want. I want you guys to read it. I want you to let it absorb. This is not Rick talking to you. This isn't something I read from a book or got from a commentator. It's not something I heard another preacher preach. This is the Lord himself telling us how it works. So we all be ready. This is it. If you do right, won't you be accepted? Now let me translate. If you do what's right, you'll feel right. If you know what's right and you do what's right, then you'll feel right. Your life will begin to make sense. Things will line up. Do what you know. And then the Lord goes on and he says, but if you don't do what you know to be right, now listen to this warning from God himself. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin, which by the way, wants to steal your joy, to kill your relationships, and to separate you from everything that's good in this life. Sin is not your friend. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to possess you, to consume you, but you must be master over it. And then there's another choice. A pause between verse seven and verse eight, where if you're like me, you're cheering for Cain, right? You're like, come on, dude, you have stepped in it. God himself is correcting you. He's given you a chance. God himself said, you know what's right, so do what's right. Let me have the relationship with you that I want to have. I don't want to hurt you. I want to give you something you've never imagined possible. I want to help you have significance. I want to show you what this love is all about. He's begging Cain. And you and I at the same point are begging Cain going, please, please make the right choice. But Cain doubled down. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Premeditated, put that in the back of your mind there as we continue to see this descending series of events. While they were in the field, oh, let's go back there, yep, thank you. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then there's another pause. Now, in this pause, we can only assume that Cain left the scene of the crime because he's talking about it like it's in a different location. And God asked another question that he doesn't need to know the answer to, that he already knows the answer to, but he's wanting Cain to accept responsibility. He says, where is your brother Abel? And then Cain adds a lie to a murder. What's the big deal, right? I mean, go ahead and compound the mistakes. I don't know, he replied. Then he uses a phrase you and I have heard in movies. You might even have said it yourself, but most people use this phrase out of context. They say, am I my brother's keeper? You ever heard that before? I'm not my brother's keeper. Uh, that's like a way that we sort of absolve ourselves of responsibility. What it really means is I killed my brother and I hit him in the dirt, right? And I'm trying to hide from God and lie about it. And people don't really see that part of it. It's just a snappy phrase to tell us that we don't have to really worry about the people who are around us. He says to God himself, he's like, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, God is gracious. I'd have smited or smote him or smitten him right then just for being a smart aleck, right? It's like, boom, you're out. I gave you a chance. We're going to have Eve create another man with my help and start all over again. 
but God is still pursuing this man. He says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Then the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. God begging him to acknowledge his sin, to turn, to worship him in the way that God desires to be worshiped. So let's move forward. Now God says you're under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. He says when you work the ground now, it's not gonna be productive for you. It'll no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be restless. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, we're gonna stop right there because you're just like me, at least in as much as you're tempted to skip over that phrase and just not let it sink in and we're gonna let it settle for a second. God says, first one's bad. The job that you had is no longer gonna be satisfying and productive, and you're always gonna be worried about providing for yourself and whether you're gonna have enough. Uh-oh, sound familiar? A lot of us live that kind of a life. But the second thing he says, this is where it really gets ominous and foreboding. He says, your choice to play games with me, your choice to be religious, your choice to hedge your bets, your choice to think about what's the bare minimum you can do to get my blessing is causing you now to be a wanderer. And it's not the cool kind of wanderer that gets in a Volkswagen van and drives around following the waves and the sun. It's a kind of wanderer where literally in the Hebrew, it means you will never have a place in this life where you can be settled and comfortable. You will never be home. And I think about that, and I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who that identifies the struggle that they have in their own lives. They just can't be present in the now. They're never settled. They're a restless wanderer moving from idea to idea, thought to thought, possession to possession, relationship to relationship, whatever it would be. They never stop searching. They never find what they're looking for. And the Bible's explaining it right here in Genesis 4. And he said, the reason is because you're still playing games with me. And some of us play really good games because we're pretty smart. And they're complicated games. And we think that we're one step ahead. And sometimes we fool the people around us because religion is easy to get good at. But you can't fool God. And the thing to remember here is God's not trying to bring somebody down. He's just trying to love and be loved the way he created us to be in this relationship. He wants to give blessing. And this man will not accept it. Man. So, here's the curse. You'll be a restless wanderer on this earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment's more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. That's bad but I will be a restless wanderer and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, there are two questions you should ask here. And if you're paying attention, you will ask. I thought, Pastor Rick, you said there were only four people on the earth, right? There's Adam, there's Eve, and there's two guys, Cain and Abel. Who's gonna kill him, right? One of them's dead, so there are three people on the earth right now. You've got Adam, you've got Eve, you've got Cain. Abel's been buried in the ground. Who's gonna kill him? The passing of time happened, and this is the way the earth was populated. Not supposed to happen today. As a matter of fact, it's illegal and for good reason. But back in the day, the original day, way, way, way back, brothers would marry sisters and they would populate the earth. For us, it's gross. We're like, oh, I can't believe that. For them, that was the only way. So by this time, there were people who had spread out. How many? Who knows? But obviously some. 
Why would they want to kill Cain? Because he killed their, his brother. Could perhaps be a dad, an uncle. And you get the picture, right? So he's worried about it. He says, I'm going to be a restless wanderer. I'm going to bounce from place to place. I'm never going to have peace in my soul. And by the way, anytime I stop, somebody's going to kill me. It's far more than I can bear. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Now, I ask questions here. They don't really matter, but I think it's interesting What's the mark that God put on Cain? Now, you and I, we all have marks on us. They're the marks that come, you could call them scars if you want to, or regret from the mistakes that we've made, the times when we've chosen to follow ourselves, the times when we've played games with God, the times when we've withheld our thoughts, our, our service, our money from him. And, the regret and the scars we carry throughout our life. But in this case, I don't know. There are some scholars who had some crazy ideas. One of them said, I think God put horns on Cain. Because anybody, I mean, if I'm walking around and I see you with horns, I'm not gonna touch you, right? Like horns, is there any biblical evidence for that? No, it's just a crazy, preposterous thing. Another scholar said, well, I think God made him twice his size of a normal human so that anyone who saw him would think he's a giant and wouldn't possibly mess with him. Perhaps, but again, no biblical evidence. Some said maybe God gave him a radioactive glow to where anybody who got near him was scared to touch him because they thought they would be. I mean, nobody really knows. I always kind of visualize it as maybe a mark across the forehead. But in some really cool poetic sense, it was still God's effort to redeem the relationship between somebody he loved and somebody who had chosen not to love God back because God was still preserving Cain's life, giving him something to remind him of the day of his biggest mistake, but to remind him that his biggest mistake wasn't fatal, that there was still a tomorrow, there was still a way to turn back. And unfortunately, we're reminded in the New Testament in at least three different places that Cain never decided to turn back, that he had a hard heart against God. And this story stands as a monument and a warning, marking two trails, letting us know at least three things. We have the slide with the three things. Our outward actions always reflect our inner convictions. Now, this is a little Forrest Gumpish, I know, if you've seen the movie, but it's simple. A disciple is as a disciple does. Our love for God is revealed in at least three ways. We can say anything we want with our mouths, but we reveal our love by our actions. Our character is revealed in the way we worship. Our character is revealed in the way that we give. Our character is revealed in the way that we serve. The upside is discovering your purpose in this life and connecting with God in a way that you were always designed to but perhaps have not yet experienced. The consequence is frustration, 
futility and a perpetual terminal restlessness of the soul. So God opens his arms and says, how will you serve me? And then he points one direction and then another and he lets us choose. It's my turn to serve. I want to serve like Jesus. Father, thank you for my friends.